I, I said to anyone who asked, why did you open a studio? It's, it's, and the answer to that was always because um, I didn't want to die wondering, you know. It's the same answer I gave my parents when they said, why, why, did you quit your why did you quit your job to start a band? You know, it's like you get one life and we're very lucky to be a white male living in a country like Australia. Hello, welcome to the first underground podcast. Uh, I'm hoping this thing will become a great resource for other engineers, either in my position or even people just starting out in this industry. Uh, I'm wanting to represent people in this community that maybe don't have much appreciation out there for whatever reason. Uh, these likely won't be gear conversations, probably not much technical minutiae at all, as I'm hoping that we can get down to some of the aesthetics and philosophies that pertain to people. So the guest for today's first ever podcast is Neil Thomason. Uh, Neil was the guitarist and main songwriter for Arcane, an uh, amazing Melbourne band from the 90s. He later went on to open Head Gap Recording Facility and has been head engineer there until earlier this year, in which he's now retired and moved out to the Victorian hinterland. Like many engineers that are housed in a commercial facility for a number of years, there's no authoritative archive of what records Neil has worked on, but if you have a collection that contains a bunch of Australian underground music from the late 90s onwards, uh, chances are you'll see his name on many a jacket. Uh, some notable bands he's worked with are Bird Blobs, My Disco, True Radical Miracle, Wagons, uh, Jen Claude. That's a very small sample. Um, I'm hoping young engineers that hear this can be inspired to go through Discogs or, or whatever to immerse themselves in all the recordings he's done over the years and hopefully have their eyes opened to an aesthetic of production that isn't as prevalent these days. Uh, also in the process, discover a bunch of remarkable bands. I first met Neil when a band I was in tracked at Head Gap, I think around 2013. Uh, I was straight away struck by how accommodating he was, despite how green our band was at the time. He really treated us like equals, like our technical and methodical opinions in regards to the recording we were about to make were of equal value to his. Uh, this impacted the engineer that was actually in front of the board for the session. Uh, it changed his attitude, seeing us interact with Neil in such a manner, and ultimately through various ways, it also had a direct impact on the engineer I've become. Uh, so he, he's a remarkable engineer and he's had a long stint in the music community in Australia. We were so appreciative he was able to take the time to do this thing. Uh, anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, before we get started, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this is being recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. Uh, we pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. All right, here we go. Will you, will you make the next couple versions a little more peppery off the top? A little more weight into it? If you want weight, I'm your fucking guy. <laughs> because weight, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you at? I'm on the bed at home. <laughs> Taking it easy. I had a little nap before dinner. This is called a, it's a nanny nap. Totally. Have you, have you been working on your house at the moment? I did a bit of that this week, yeah. I haven't been at the studio since last week. Um, and I don't think I'll be back until January. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to start off on uh, Rakane, like how that band came about and what the music scene was like in Melbourne. Uh, in the early 90s when you guys were starting? Um, so the band started in 94. Okay. I'd, I'd played in sort of Sonic Youth style, Mud Honey, sort of grunge stuff, be grunge bands before that. And then um, I heard Fugazi and... Um, Shellac and the Jesus Lizard and Shellac toured around that time with Fugazi. Yeah. I think that was in 1993. I think that was second tour for Fugazi and first for Shellac. And uh, I, uh, 
I mean, both of those bands were amazing. Like, they played together, and both of those bands were incredible. But um, I'd never seen a band play in the way that Shellac played. Not just the style of music, but the sort of physicality that Albini brought to his guitar playing. And, you know, he's kind of mellowed a bit as he's gotten older, but... Definitely, yeah. Um, they were very early shows for Shellac. I think they came out here... You know, this is before the album was out. The Seven Inches might have been out. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I think I remember hearing sometime that he wanted he wanted the band to play overseas and get some sort of stage legs before they sort of toured the States or so. Like, it was super early days for the band, and they were just vibrant, you know. They were just on fire with this crackling energy, and I'd never really seen that sort of intensity and... Um, yeah, the seeing, physicality, particularly to to Albini. Seeing those videos from them in the nineties is definitely they're a good example of um, like it's more intense than watching like a metal band or something. Well, Bob sort of is, was exactly like Bob is now, but Steve, I guess it's that juxtaposition of like the skinny super nerd with the glasses, but just ripping it up, you know, just attacking the guitar. Well, that's my memory of it anyway. Other people might might feel differently, but I. I'd sort of never seen anyone play that sort of... I mean, he had, you know, he's had the the um, Travis Bean guitar. I don't think I'd ever seen one of those before. And, yeah, it was just a, a, a hugely uh, pivotal moment for me as a young guy who was on, on the scene playing in bands. Um, I couldn't... I didn't, At that stage, I didn't really know of any other local bands that, that were really making music like that. Yeah. Um, the mark of Cain at that stage were sort of. I was going to um, mention, yeah. They, you know, they'd worked. They'd worked with Steve in some capacity. He'd mixed their stuff or he'd recorded some of their stuff, and they had that sort of real metallic, you know, Rick and Backer guitar thing going on. But. Um, well, apparently, I think he mentioned that he did track one of their records at Mixmasters. Well, the early incarnation of Mix Masters in Adelaide, and that was where he got the idea for the Adobe Walls. Yeah, I've I've heard similar stuff, maybe from Mick from Mix Masters. Yeah. Yeah. But Rickane started pretty quickly but, after that, then. Oh, I basically quit the band I was in because it was just sort of too fuzzy and grungy, and um, I wanted to, yeah, push out for something that was a bit harder edged and angular, and um, simultaneously, like like. There were some really great programs on Triple R Radio at the time that were playing a lot of um, the stuff from Chicago labels like Touch and Go. And, um, yeah, this whole sort of door opened up to um, a sort of style of punk rock that, that I didn't know about before. It's cool. It was There's something interesting about the way that a lot of bands from that era of Touch and Go were able to be subversive because a lot of a lot of musicians to subvert they used synthesis or extra elements or different instrumentation or theater but there were a lot of bands on touch and go from that era that were you know guitar and guitar bands guitar and bass bands that really were pushing the envelope somehow using real kind of basic music but just playing it in such a way with such a weight it's pretty hard to sum up that that label because it's fairly diverse and when I think of Touch and Go I also think of all the labels they dis- that they distributed like Quarter Stick and um, yeah. uh, it's a label that Polvo were on but anyway all those kind of bands that had music that was um, it wasn't like fast punk you know it sort of had, had very little to do with like the Washington hardcore kind of thing yeah. and it wasn't sort of LA uh, pop punk and you know it wasn't sort of uh, arty like New York stuff was you know it, it, it had this whole very sort of borderline industrial almost kind of not, not industrial in a in a musical sense but in a in, in the city of Chicago being just a pretty hard tough city in a lot of ways very extreme climates there and um I think it reflected all of that in, in a weird way, and just the sort of the integrity that you know, or, or the self-righteous integrity that some of the personalities, including Albini, sort of brought to the scene. It seemed to have a very, at least as an outsider, it seemed to have this very 
hardcore line of like you you do this and it's valid and you do this and it's invalid and that, that seems to infect the music yeah I feel like the, the weird thing is when, when people from that era talk about it it seems like it was all quite disparate and there wasn't a shared aesthetic but as an outsider it's hard to kind of yeah it, it's I, I don't know you know I, I wasn't there I was just sort of observing it all from overseas and there'd be a, a million other people who were closer to it with a better understanding of it but um Maybe, maybe I'm imagining there was more of a, a shared aesthetic than there really was, but or maybe I was just cherry-picking the bands that I thought were linked to each other musically. Um, what, was your, what was your role in, in the band? I, I think there was a great democracy within the band, um, regardless of who walked into the room with the riffs. I think we tried really hard to engender a sense of um, a shared trajectory and um, and... I think that was, you know, just in, like a lot of bands, it was embodied by sharing music with each other and a lot of time in a tour van driving into state and uh, listening to the same records and really getting a kick out of it all. Um, but, I mean, it was the same lineup the whole time and, um, you know, we were never super duper tight people outside of the band, but within the band there was just a a shared enjoyment and um, uh, the band was very um, focused, uh, I suppose, uh, certainly in the first, uh, up until after the second record anyway, we sort of split off into some side projects after that, but the first sort of four or five years were very, um, we, we all really kind of devoted our lives to it really. Did you have some kind of goal with it, or it was more so just this mania, just this thing that had to be, you had to make records that? Oh, uh, it's you shouldn't really talk about that, that band without actually talking about Rubber Records, which is the label that we were on, um, which was run by a guy called David Vodica. The, the, the label, unfortunately, was more kind of pop focused than what, what our music was, but. David's support of the band was remarkable and um, we owe a lot of what we achieved, certainly in terms of making the records, to David's belief in what we could possibly do. Um, uh, you know, when I think of the band's legacy, obviously I think of the records and a lot of, lot of, the, lot of the responsibility for those records existing lies with David's financial support of... Um, of what the band was trying to do, and 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 in a really, in a really generous hands-off kind of way, like he would just basically say, "Okay, look, here's, here's what I think we can afford for you guys in the studio. Uh, just come back to me when it's finished," which is um, quite generous, really. And um, yeah, I feel really indebted to the support of that label which was kind of run by David and just volunteer staff really out of a little office in Melbourne. And um, it, it, I mean, it was, I feel really lucky to have sort of had a chance at playing music in the 90s because it was a time where weird guitar music got really massive, you know? So yeah. there was a, a, a real belief in the music industry that, the bands playing as weird as the stuff that we were doing could actually find an audience, and of course, most of them, most of us didn't really. But um, for for a while there, it was like you could play really crazy guitar music, and you could find a small label who could help you make records. Like it's just, it hasn't happened since, and it probably may well never happen again. In fact, I'm almost certainly say it won't won't ever happen again like that. So it was a remarkable sort of, you know, five to ten year period where music that seems really unpopular now was one of the most popular styles on the planet. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm sure you have as well tracked a lot of bands, um, you know, maybe in a similar realm to what you guys were and you know, haven't been able to find an audience or definitely not any financial backing from external sources. But what's it? What is it like to, to view that era retrospectively um, now that you don't play music anymore? Like, how do you view this this the scene now comparatively? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I view it as um, the luckiest guy in the world to have just 
kind of stumbled into this music um, at a time where there was an audience for it because, yeah, you're right, you know, in working as an audio engineer, yeah, encountered a bunch of bands playing similar stuff or, or seen them at shows and it's like, oh, this is brutal. Like the, amount of, the amount of times I've thought to myself, wow, if this band was around in the mid-90s, they would have definitely had an audience and a label and, all, like, it's, yeah, it's... It just makes me feel really lucky. And it was kind of dumb luck, you know. It wasn't... It was just um, getting caught up in the swell of, of, of music that was um, engulfing um, the planet, really, or the Western world at the time. And, uh, and, and, and you know, retrospectively, you feel naive because you sort of made certain decisions thinking it wasn't going to change, you know. Like... Yeah. As you stick around in the music industry, you realise obviously that trends come and go and they seem to come and go really quickly these days. But um, you think without any uh, perspective or, or a prior experience, you just assume that the sort of music you're playing will continue to be popular and that's, uh, that's a very naive point of view that you can really only have when you're like, 25. Yeah, the revolutions just seem to be accelerating these days in terms of you know what's what there is an audience for well, well, throughout history in general. Well, of course, this is all, it's all pre-internet, right? So exactly. the whole industry was was way more controllable by the big labels and, and the conventional media outlets, print and radio, that sort of uh, had a really static structure for decades, you know. And then that all just came crumbling down in a really short space of time, which was that great period of sort of havoc at the end of the 90s into the early 2000s, the whole Napster downloading kind of thing. And and the whole whole industry just kind of reinvented itself over the next 10 years and suddenly we had MP3s and iTunes and um, YouTube and all these other ways of consuming music that didn't even exist, you know, five years beforehand. The, the, the change to the industry was remarkable and hard to keep up with. I'd stopped playing really with any sort of uh, sincerity or with any anything any, anything that was intended to be taken seriously. You know, I was just playing. I continued playing in bands for kicks. Uh, Rakane played the Slash Show in two thousand and one, and after that, I just kind of played with friends for fun, really. Um, so I wasn't really trying to keep abreast of it as a musician. Um, as an engineer and a studio owner, it was um, hard to ignore the changes. You kind of had to keep up with it. But uh, like I say, it was um, it was difficult. And, you know, social media, you know, this is all sort of the emerging social media, MySpace initially, and then Facebook. All, all of that happened right around the time I opened the studio. So it was, it was, kind, of, it was kind of a wild ride. Yeah. What prompted you all to collectively make a decision to venture over to Chicago and employ Bob Weston to... Is it Clarity of Distance that, that Bob recorded? Yeah, that's right. Um, we, ha- we had an opportunity to, to go to New York the year before, I think it was, to do, um, to do that festival that used to happen over there. I can't remember what it's called. Um, and we didn't go for some reason. Um, but then we got... Uh, accepted to do South by Southwest in Austin, in Texas, and um, and, Bob, and and the label had been in touch with Bob around the same time. So um, you know, it's a long way to go, and it's a lot of money to spend. But we figured if we could do South by Southwest as well as the recording, uh, it might be more worthwhile. And we also did. A handful of shows in Los Angeles and New York, but um, I think I think for us, the the oh, by by far the most exciting part of that trip was getting to Chicago and um, making a record with Bob. Were you an active engineer at that time? No, no. That's that's kind of the other you had done the other or, reason. Or that. More so, um, no, I don't think I'd done a single thing. Um, I think, I think uh, when I came back from Chicago, uh, or maybe just before, a friend of mine had um, 
uh, loaned me his recording equipment, which was a half-inch eight-track machine and a little desk and a handful of mics and so forth. So I either had that equipment then or shortly afterwards. And um, I think the big one of the big takeaways from making that record with Bob was um, seeing that the process was wasn't about like um, incredible engineered tricks you know it was just about setting up the band in a really nice acoustic space and capturing them without kind of getting in between the band and the, and the recording and um, there was a wonderful uh, efficiency and simplicity to that which um, which was really eye-opening. Had you the, the previous recordings that you guys have done um, I mean were they of a similar aesthetic or it was more, were they digital recordings? Like was there tinkering afterwards with the things that you were dissatisfied with and that, you know, really pushed you to go to the source, so to speak? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. They were ADAT recordings um, done on the same equipment but with different engineers. Um, and they were, in, in both cases, it was like the band and the engineer working together to try and, figure out how to make it sound like the records we were listening to at the time. Um, we succeeded, I think, to a certain degree. Like, I think both of those, I think yeah, those they, early they, recordings they, sound... The first record sounded great. Yeah, yeah. So, like, if you're interested in that sort of production style, then you can hear us trying to do the ambient drum thing and... Um, you know, ADAT got poo-pooed and... Um, Are those recoverable, like, in uh, like that, that, that early session? Like, was it archived? No, I've got the multi-tracks and the mixes, um, but I haven't um, put them onto a computer or anything like that. Yeah. So what was it like uh, in Chicago? Like, how many days did you spend on it? And... Uh, we, we, we had seven days to make the record, um, and I think we did... We did like a Friday night, a Saturday and a Sunday at Chicago Recording Company, um, which is like where the Jesuses made their records in those same rooms. So that was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, I saw some photos. Um, and it looks like a massive space. I know it's yeah, different now. It's, really been, it's been renovated and some rooms, have, single rooms have become two and, and whatnot. But I think there were, like there were, it was a massive studio. There was... Um, another studio somewhere else in, in the area that was owned by CRC and like Smashing Pumpkins were recording there or something like that you know so it was a big fancy studio downtown yeah uh, and I think it consisted of a number of studios you know and so we did like basically a weekend and a Friday night tracking um, and we started on vocals like on the Sunday night and then we went to what was Electrical Audio, which was, which was Steve's old house in Evanston, a suburb of um, Chicago, which was basically a tracking space in his basement and then a uh, mixing desk and whatnot up in, the, up in his attic and his house in between. So, um, yeah. Uh, then we, so we did the rest of the vocals and track there. And, um, you know, I think, I think from memory we might have even finished early or something. You know, we got... Like, like I say, Bob's approach is totally just like uh, uh, let the band do their thing and, you know, answer questions if they have them, but uh, just give them good gear and a good acoustic space. And uh, I think he got a little bit um, frustrated because uh, when we were mixing, you know, we'd made a couple of records that so we, were, we were sort of maybe pushing where the mixer should go a little harder. We should have just let, you know, should have just deferred to him and it probably would have been better off. But um, he was a very polite guy. We, we were um, staying on the floor of his house, you know. Um, so it was, um, it was, he's a total gentleman and uh, it was just a, a, a fantastic, indulgent experience. I mean, shortly after that time, he stopped engineering, didn't he, and then moved into mastering full time? I think it was quite a while after. That was 97. And I opened Head Gap in 2006, and that was almost right about the time he opened. So 
I, I think he, I read an interview with him saying, look, you know, at a certain point the phone just stopped ringing, you know, and I, I know that seems wild because he, he, if you're interested in the Chicago scene, you couldn't help but own a bunch of really cool records cut by him. But um, it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier, you know, the sort of music that was so massive in the 90s just went off the edge of a cliff at the end of that decade and... Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, not that surprising in that context that he, he would um, uh, go in for a mastering studio. I, I think that was an incredibly, incredibly smart, prudent move. So that was the that was the catalyst for starting at Gap, really. Well, that experience was. Um, I, I guess I, you know I'd listen to those records that were coming out of Chicago by Bob or by Steve or by whoever the Slint records, you know, and and they seemed to have something that was remarkable about them that wasn't being captured by too many other engineers. And so I thought, oh, there must be some huge trick to it. You know, how, how do you how do you make a rock band sound so good? But to my, to my shock and horror, it was actually just uh, some very simple, quite old-fashioned techniques around ambient miking of the drums and as I said a couple of times, a really nice acoustic space, and that's about as complicated as it kind of gets, really. Um, yeah. I mean, so much about Steve's work is about, oh, he's a tape guy, he uses tape, and oh, it's like, that's, I really think the recording medium's not, not anything to do with it it's at all. It's kind of redundant, but, um, they'd probably sound the same if you went digital. Well, um, I, I just don't think it's an important part of, of what that sound was. But um, certainly experiencing it um, gave me a sense of um, empowerment, just, just watching uh, how it was done. And, yeah, I came back really excited about the possibilities of a microphone and a tape recorder and, and just dived in and, you know, I was made really bad sounding recordings for a long time, but uh, I had the spark, you know, that the fire had been lit and... I'm a kind of curious person who kind of, you know, won't sort of settle until I kind of achieve a, a goal that I set for myself and I really wanted to try and get into recording records and try and capture sounds like I'd heard on those records and uh, took a long time took a long time for me to really figure that out even though I've sort of said oh it's a simple thing it's um it's simple but at know, the same it's, time it's there's, no, there's no shortcuts it's a difficult thing to master you know like a lot of things in life you know. exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> playing golf looks easy doesn't it <laughs> exactly I mean it took me like eight years to not be embarrassed to say that I was an engineer it's just years of terrible recordings and after a decade or whatever it's got, like the way I record is like even so much simpler like I've just gone so much more back to basics for getting better recordings out of it, which kind of resonates with what you were saying. Yeah, I think if I'd had to rely on um, uh, less direct uh, education, so basically secondhand information from forums and magazines, you know, how do you? I, I, I don't know how you filter through that to find out what's actually relevant. You know, if you jump on to gear slots or whatever and say. How do I get a kick-ass snare sound? You know, you'll get a hundred different responses. Um, thankfully, I, I, I'd been lucky enough to be in a band that got to make a bunch of records, so I had at least some sense of not only what I wanted to do, but but how some sense of how to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, for, I'm not saying forums aren't useful or anything, but. Um, I don't think there's anything quite like um, first-hand experience at, uh, at something. And I, I feel particularly lucky to have been in a band that got to make records, some in really low-rent studios and some in incredibly fancy studios. But I got to do that a number of times and it was incredibly educational, which is why I tell any engineer who asks, who, who's looking for make a start in... In, in the industry as an engineer is playing a band. You've got to play in a band. You've got to do that for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, 
for me, I see it as the most important thing I did as the stepping stone to becoming a recording engineer. Was there a crossover point where you were engineering on a primary level whilst being active in Rutan? Like, how did you juggle that if that was, if that was the case? Well, yeah, I was working part-time, you know, just some silly office job, um, and like playing in the band and managing the band, booking the band, that kind of stuff. But it still left me with time to just kind of do both of those things. Um, initially, I mean, like so many people, like you start out just making demos for friends and then someone's crazy enough to think they should release it. And, um, you know, I was working cheap, like a lot of people do when they start out and um, I was making records at my house like a lot of people do when they start out. So it's a really common career path, if you can call it that, but it just grew and grew. And at a certain point, I made a record in those sort of primitive early days that actually sounded, I thought, okay. And, and I thought, oh, hang on, you know, maybe I am actually getting better and learning something. And every now and again, you know, maybe maybe you have to wait a year or two years between when it happens but every now and again you know you kind of do something that works out really well and gives you the confidence to keep going and keep learning and um, it's usually a good band too absolutely i agree with that completely did you notice um a change in your time demographic when you weren't active in the music scene like whether it's regards to an increase or decrease in work no because melbourne's such a varied scene so I was always dealing with really varied stuff and always did like I definitely was never the dude that did a certain style Um, and mainly I was happy happy about that I probably would would have liked and would like to record more heavy rock music but um, uh, you know I'm I'm really happy with what I've done but um, uh, it was always a, a real variety of stuff um, from the, from the get go. In that time, you've seen uh, the industry fluctuate. I'm sure at times, you know, quite unpredictably. Not just in terms of like the technological elements, but just the aesthetics of record making, which are of course intertwined. How did Head Gap, whether the, or even you, whether those changes? Well, it was um, the emergence of home recording that sort of uh, created the biggest change in my opinion so you sort of had you know technology marching forward and, and giving giving uh, a lot of people access to um, to recording equipment of a certain um, quality a good and bad um, uh, and people just started making records willy-nilly at home. Uh, that, that was one of the huge changes. But in conjunction with that, you had social media and the internet more broadly allowing people to release their music to an audience, um, if they could find one, um, without the need for a record company. So, you know, you had this great flattening of the industry in terms of um, who had power and who didn't. Um, depending on what your sort of perception of the word sort of power means, you certainly have the ability to make a record at home and basically release it to a worldwide audience. And, you know, you just couldn't do that before the internet and before the technology that came along with it. So, you know, that's obviously a a huge topic unto itself. But um, when, when I was thinking about opening the studio... You know, we were just so, you know, like most people that own a, uh, open a studio, we were so excited by it. We weren't looking that hard into the future. Um, if we had been a bit smarter, we probably could have forecast what was coming. But uh, we were just so, you know, used the word mania before to talk about the band, but it was a real mania around wanting to open a studio. And I, I think even if someone had walked up to us and said, hey, you're crazy, you know, the recording industry is about to die, which probably several people did, actually, now I think about it, but it's like, you can't tell people like we were at the time, you know. People are going to do what they're going to do anyway. 
like I did. I mean, so many people said to me, uh, the industry, like the recording industry is dead. If you want to do it, you're going to do it anyway. I think there are certain things in life that you feel compelled to do, um, regardless of the um, uh, logic or, or, or lack of it, and regardless of what other people tell you, whether those people are your parents or um, uh, your peers or, or what you read on the internet. You know, if you, music and art is about passion, and it's passion that fuels those kind of decisions. So you started HeadGap as a partnership, am I correct? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, how much of the technical aspects of running a studio was on your shoulders? I mean, that sounds like a huge task, just a large commercial recording facility. When you've just been freelancing um, at the level that HeadGap was at, it seems really intense. You know, it's not like a home studio yeah, these days uh, well, like, you just buy you know, an interface in 20 Well, again, it's, it was, you know, naivety on our part, really. I mean... Myself and my business partner, like we both run tape machines. You know, we we hadn't we hadn't run two inch machines, but um, we had exposure to to tape. Um, but yeah, of course, we underestimated all that. And um, before you before you dive into a, an operation like that, you don't really know anything about it, and um, you kind of just assume everything's going to work most of the time. So yeah, it was it was a really brutal sort of three-ish years while we um, reconditioned the main tape recorder and also the console that we bought. Like it was a real slog. Um, and you know how did we get through that? Well, my partner was way more conversant in electronics than I was, so I learned a lot from him, and we. Um, you know, in turn, learn a lot from amazing online forums for, for studio tape machines and near-tech consoles. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about the internet in that sense is, you know, it has become uh, an incredible vehicle for sharing knowledge. A lot of that happens on YouTube now, but I think the older version of that is um, it's just signing up to a forum or, 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 or uh, like the groups I'm referring to are just like, you know, old school mail groups. You know, like you just you just get an email where someone posts a question. And yeah, you, you can did, chime in you and did answer point it. Me to so, the, um, uh, Ampex Digest, which I still follow. Well, like the combined brain, worldwide brain power of like te- techs and former engineers, current engineers that are on on the on those kind of lists is incredible. It's like the cream of the crop, really. So you you get some incredibly generous individuals that are just sitting anonymously on the other side of the planet and will help people help each other out like uh we'll type it, it's, 10 it's paragraphs funny. up for you or even take a phone video when you don't even know them and you that's always blown my mind how consistent people are and how helpful people are in, in the community well we're all in the same boat you know there, there's a wonderful sense of empathy and, and a sense of okay you know let's let's uh let's take 10 minutes out of my day here to try and help out this person I've never met on the other side of the planet because we know how brutal it can be when, you know, when that thing blows up in the corner. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That sounds like a pretty stressful first few years. I definitely didn't have anyone... It was awful, actually. ...that was like a mentor or anything. I assume you didn't either. We had a local tech who could help us out if we were in a real pinch, but there are so few professional techs left in Melbourne that just trying to get one to the studio, you know, unless the studio was on fire and burning down, it's, it's almost like, Oh, sorry, there's something more important going on. Um, and, and that's a guy called Des Amos and Des is, Des is great and, and helped us out of some real pickles. Um, so we took it upon ourselves to learn as much as we could and learn how to line up and tech the tape machine and, refurbish the mixing desk and fix as much stuff as we could. And if we if we did, hadn't have done that, like we would just would have gone out of business or we would have had to just sell all the analog gear because we couldn't keep it working, you know. But we just, um, like I say, my partner um, was heading up that, um, that um, knowledge, uh, that, that learning and passing it on to me and... Um, if, yeah, if we hadn't have had that inclination, uh, as, as tough as it was, it, we, you know, we stuck at it because we really wanted to run a tape machine and a large format console. We really had that drive to deliver that to the Melbourne scene. Uh, that was the whole point of setting it up, really. You know, if we wanted to just be another Pro Tools studio, then 
there wasn't much point. Exactly. Yeah, I think people appreciate that quality, not just from the actual technical aspect of it, but just that personability. It really feels like a proper session when you are conducting yourself in that manner, not just the actual sound of what they're trying to achieve. I think there's a real cliche in audio engineering world of the dishevelled engineer who's been up all night and hasn't had a shower and you know it's kind of like a silly cliche you see on comedy shows or whatever but but it's a cliche for a reason you know there are plenty of those people around and that was never the, the kind of place I wanted it to be or the person I wanted to be you know people can do whatever they want to do if that's what makes them feel good and that's how they enjoy making records but that wasn't me personally and um, yeah I, I think we also was, had pretty high aspirations about where our place was going to be within the Melbourne recording Melbourne studio scene like I'm not necessarily that competitive by nature but my partner was 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 a, quite a competitive person and you know and he really had lofty ideas about being basically the best studio in town and that's always going to be a subjective thing, you know, best of what, but um, he was pushing really hard to um, to set the bar really high, uh, technically at least. I know earlier in your career, your aesthetic sort of went closer towards a hands-off approach, maybe sort of short of documentarian, but still a mood from the creative influence normally seen in modern production by someone in a technical role. Um, we've recently spoken in depth about this, and I just want to explore how your approach in the studio has changed on an interpersonal level with clients. I think when I started recording that um, I thought I had opinions that could help bands, so I would make suggestions about what they should or shouldn't do, or, or bring a certain aesthetic to the, the mixes that they may not have been so comfortable with and so I would get feedback occasionally from from people who were you know (laughs) wanting to let me know that um, what I was doing or saying wasn't actually uh, helping very much so I think that I um, you know I maybe took that to heart Um, so by the time I opened Head Gap I was maybe biting my tongue a little bit more Um, and and it also took quite a long time of working with bands to figure out what maybe my style was and what was most appropriate for for each band that I work with because it's not the same every time. Exactly. And um, sometimes someone will, will be really helpful and say, hey, look, we really invite your input and any suggestions that you have, just sing out. And then other people will say the opposite of that. And in either case, that's really, really helpful. Um, what, what's probably least helpful is when people people don't let you know either way or you try and have that conversation and they just sort of shuffle their feet and shrug their shoulders and so you're left as the engineer going, well, I really feel deeply that we could improve what's going on here by changing this, but, uh, you know, what should I do? Yeah, I'm not sure. So, it's, you know, well, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes like a... <laughs> pipe up but other times you know you're just trying to read the vibe in the room and that that just takes a long time to learn about personalities like I think one of the fascinating things about being an engineer is you get to sit back and watch other humans interacting and there's a lot to be learned from that um it's, hopefully it's I've learned prime a bit people because watching I was, as a job it, it is and obviously you see a lot of tropes you see a lot of repeated repeated relationships and you you go okay well this this person's clearly leading the band and this person doesn't really have much of a role or this is a really democratic group or, you know, you, you, you quickly learn to assess um, uh, what's going on and, um, yeah, the structure, that's right. How, how have you been going since you've left the studio? Are you still doing much freelance work or are you kind of happy to not be involved as much anymore? Did your, did your involvement slowly taper off or was it kind of a point where you kind of said, you know, I'm... Yeah, I think when we've spoken in the past, I've told you how, um, you know, I, like I had certain aspirations for my uh, career as an engineer and they were fulfilled maybe in a technical sense. They were fulfilled in terms of, you know, after years of plugging away and running the studio, I finally got to a point where I felt really comfortable with what I could achieve as an engineer. And and like a, earlier in the conversation, I, I talked about having this 
burning desire to get the sounds I was hearing in my head coming out of the speakers on behalf of the band, you know. And probably after about five years of running the studio, I felt like I was getting to that point nice and consistently, and that that was very satisfying for me. Um, But I also felt like as I got better and better as as an engineer, you know, um, interest from the from the band community and what I was doing was sort of flat, had flatlined, you know, or, or, or tape, tapering off, you know. So I found I couldn't really maintain a profile as, as an engineer. Um, you know, people knew me more as a studio owner than someone that made a particular style of um, records. Um, and, and, you know, so in, in watching that happen, I sort of slowly started to realise that my understanding of what was important about records was a very subjective one based around being an audio engineer so when I listened to a record I'd hear the songs but I'd you know be listening with an audio engineer's ears and be listening to the production and and I'd you know over over decades of sort of pursuing audio engineering you start to perceive records in a completely different way to the average listener or even the average musician so my whole judgment for what might have been good or bad about a record is, is quite a skewed one and quite a um, one that reflects um, the point of view of someone who, who, you know, makes records for a living. So anyway, point being, you know, the things that I felt were important in audio production, you know, were very hard to articulate to, um, to a lot of people. And I think that, that, that works the other way as well. You know, that someone listens to a record and they don't really care that much about the production. Or I, I feel like in Melbourne anyway, you know, Melbourne's real indie town, there's a lot of lo-fi, low-budget recordings happening, and that's great. You know, it makes for a very democratic music scene where labels and money are sort of largely out of the equation. And community radio has has a wonderful influence, and and that's a, that's a, an excellent thing. But it doesn't necessarily mean that someone who's into really high-fi recordings, like I am, is uh, in in the right spot. You know, and, and you could say I should be in a, in, a, in a town like Sydney if I really uh, have um, full-bodied, high-fidelity recordings at, at the heart of what I want to do. But I don't know, maybe that's just an excuse excuse for failure on some level. But um, I don't think it's failure. And also, I, don't, I think there's some things you're touching on there that are, that are relevant. I think a lot of engineers would finish a project and it would get compared to mixes that have, you know, all sorts of distortion artifacts and characteristics to it and it's extremely blown out and incredibly loud and brick wall limited and you know all the the things that are more inherent in, in modern production obviously that's going to win like that that mix that is that is less um traditional is is going to win the shootout um you know like talking about those engineer cliches before i think i think one of the things i didn't mention is, is like the aging engineer who's become really bitter about his perceived failure and I, and I, I, I could see myself heading down that path and that was like the last path I wanted to head down you know I was the guy who'd become a little bit grumpy when he didn't get his way with the band or you know I, I just didn't want to turn into that sort of bitter old dude who was just banging on about the 90s and people who know me will probably laugh because I do that a lot anyway but um I just felt I was getting a little bit too close to that cliche for comfort. So, um, you know, what's that Einstein quote? It's, it's, it, the definition of insanity is someone who does same the same thing, thing day, again yeah. and again, thinking they'll get a different result, yeah. you know. I just sort of reached that point. Do you feel like, yeah, there's something, something else I wanted to talk about in terms of that. Did you feel like some of the, I don't know whether how much is archived, but things that you've worked on from 10, 15 years ago, do you think they're still they'll find an audience in some time and do you think there's a there's a validity in that the fact that you have gone to those <laughs> levels of extreme to make it you know in talking in terms of hi-fi i mean obviously, uh, i don't think anyone cares really you don't unfortunately not no like um yeah i, I kind of re- yeah look I, I really did reach the 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 point where um I sort of had this uh, epiphany that um yeah so many things that were really important to me were just lost on on Certainly, music consumers and and often a lot, a lot of the bands that I work with. Sometimes the band will come in and go, "Oh, mate, I really love what you did with that band on that record." It's like it's just like, "Oh, it's just everything a record should be." But you know that might happen once a year or something. So it's kind of like, "Oh, if that's if that's how it is, um, it's probably time just to to let let the youngsters have a go." But there's still an audience for what for 
for high what you're talking about for making hi-fi recordings yeah 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 um absolutely but you know it's not like i'm the only engineer who thinks that way you know i don't, I don't mean to imply that um it's 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 the it's the pie that's being sliced up into really tiny little slices isn't it you know yeah. Uh, how many how many bands are there that want to make records, and how many engineers are there? It seems like there's more engineers than bands at this point, which um, <laughs> there actually which statistically is. makes it that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that there is right. So, you know, look, I I I, I dedicated um, you know twelve or thirteen years of running the studio. Yeah, like I see those older engineers around town, and they're all a bit insane, and they're all kind of seem. Uh, kind of unhappy um, with with very few exceptions and um, I was yeah I was I could see myself becoming one of those people I think the older I get the more I learn about the world and the exposure that we have now to um, to um, you know via via news networks to the minutiae of what's going on on the planet you know I expose myself daily to um, to all the negativity of the world because unfortunately that's what makes the headlines um, yes. but statistically the things are getting better on, on the planet Ign ignoring the environmental catastrophe we are actually living in a time of less famine and less war and um, less crime and, and less, uh, less death so I, I should be feeling better um, but you know there's an ennui that you enter into in middle age and I'm definitely in the middle of that where you kind of like all, all the dreams of your youth have sort of run their course and you're trying to figure out what's important and, and what makes you happy as you get older. So, um, like I said, I, 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 I said to anyone who asked, why did you open a studio? It's, it's, and the answer to that was always because um, I didn't want to die wondering, you know. It's the same answer I gave my parents when they said, why, why, did, you quit your why did you quit your job to start a band? You know, it's like you get one life and we're very lucky to be a white male living in a country like Australia where opportunities are basically endless and um, I feel feel incredibly lucky to have taken a chance here and there to pursue um, what I felt was important to me and had and had had the luxury to to be artistically inclined and live in a country that that could support that you know so yeah I mean I feel incredibly satisfied um, that I had a go and some of the things that happened were ridiculous and insane and amazing and, and made for sort of lifelong memories that and, and lifelong friendships that are, are irreplaceable. So, um, you know, whilst I may not get out of bed every day and punch the air, if I look back on it, it's like, it's pretty wow, incredible. There, there was a whole mixture. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. And, um, you know, there's a whole mixture of emotions in there, negative and positive, but that, that's life, isn't it, you know? Alrighty, so there we have it. Uh, apologies for some of the sound issues there. That was actually Neil's, uh, the fan on his laptop cranked into full capacity about halfway through, so that we needed a bit of trickery there to get rid of that. Um, so yeah, we have the next few guests lined up, but if anyone has any suggestions for future guests, just shoot us through an email as we're probably going to do these fortnightly from this point. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Alrighty. Bye.